You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, thank you for this Lord's Day, for the power of your word, for your truth, your gospel. Thank you for the bond that we have in Christ and that we can rely upon the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. May this be for your glory and honor. We ask this in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, uh, we're in Acts 3, and this is the second sort of gospel message. Peter preached at Pentecost. This message, I think, is, tends to be overlooked, but it's just as powerful and I, th- I want to kind of go through Acts 3 um, so that you get sort of the flow of it. I won't read it all. I'll read it in parts. One day, Peter and John, and just Peter and John, um, Peter and John uh, ran to the tomb, you remember. It's those two, and they had a foot race to the tomb. And then the next time we find Peter and John in the fishing boat in Galilee together. And then remember in John 21, breakfast on the beach, where Jesus does his counseling with Peter over the three denials. And, uh, you know, he asked, do you love me? And Peter says, you know that I love you. And there's real forgiveness that Jesus uh, works out with Peter, I think, in that setting. But then he goes on to explain how Peter will suffer for the gospel. And John is apparently close by and walking, and uh, Jesus and Peter are walking, but John must be in sight because Peter says, well, what about him? And remember, Jesus' response was, Basically, don't worry about him. If I want him to live until I come back, that's not your business. But I think there's something about uh, togetherness. Uh, these two friends, you don't see a lot of singularity in the New Testament, but you see a lot of friendship and partnership. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. So part of their ritual, part of the rhythms of grace in their life was to go to the temple and to pray. And it introduces a theme for us, I think, that uh, this is all about the fact that the purest form of Judaism has Christ at the center. The Messiah has come. Peter, you know, will struggle with the idea that the gospel is open to the Gentiles. That will be a painful struggle for him. Part of it was he was passionate for Israel to understand and to receive the Messiah. And so this second Pentecost message, the first one is set up by the Holy Spirit and breaking out and the disciples speaking in tongues and the evidence of sort of a physical manifestation of the Spirit. Now the Spirit's going to break out in a different way. Verse 2, Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, 
where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Now, it's interesting, he's there. And as you read the chapter all the way through, you realize that he was somewhat of a fixture at that gate. He had been there for a long time. He was 40, we'll read at the very end. So he had been there for years. Jesus would have passed by him multiple times without any healing. There's never any indication that Jesus healed everybody in sight. The healings were a sign of the gospel coming and were uh, particular and selective. Eight weeks previously, they had walked through this gate after Jesus had delivered a powerful condemnation of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He left nothing out, and you, you can feel the heat of his, it's in Matthew 23, uh, 24, his sermon against the Pharisees. And they left that gate, and you remember the disciples started praising the beauty of the building, the magnificent edifice of the temple. Meanwhile, what Jesus had noticed was the widow who put in her a mite. And Jesus' comment was, she's put in more than everybody else. Jesus saw the widow. They saw the buildings. Eight weeks later, they're going to see a lame man. They're not going to see the building. This is the difference the resurrection made and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And there's a sense in Luke's description here of the attentiveness of what's going on and the look. Verse 3, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Okay? Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name. Now this phrasing, in the name, is going to be strategically important for everything that follows. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, no shying away from Jesus' historical and human uh, roots, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened uh, to him. So the Holy Spirit's going to set this up with a lame man that now walks. It raises for us Westerners, there's two big issues that Westerners react to, I think, uh, those... Uh, post-enlightenment Western intellectuals that we all are. Um, one, the exclusive truth claim of Christ, because this sermon is heading to 
There is no other name given among men whereby you must be saved. That's a tough one for the Western world. And this idea that the actual miraculous happens, that the author of life has the power to heal and to restore, Peter will make it very clear, it's not us, it's not our godliness, it is uh, Jesus Christ that has, has done this. And I've raised this before, this uh, as a pastor, when we talk about the miraculous, I always feel somewhat like, do I have to get into all that in the flow of the text? Do I have to kind of address the miraculous every time it comes up? Because it comes up a lot. Uh, I will share, I believe in the miraculous. I believe God intervened. I believe God healed through uh, the use of the apostles here in the spirit. He healed him. Uh, I believe it because... uh, I think God's word testifies to that. I don't know really how to live life without believing in the author of life, uh, because that's a whole different worldview to accept that. Um, Two quick stories. Uh, We've been involved for many years in this ministry in northern Ghana, which is a very poor uh, part of Ghana, the northern region. dominantly Muslim, tremendous Christian ministry and outreach in a small village area uh, called Carpenter with a friend, David Mensa, who we met in Toronto as he was finishing up his PhD, and I was in that same program ahead of him. And uh, so we've been involved with this ministry for 35-some years. Simon is the chief uh, driver This ministry has uh, extensive agricultural impact, educational impact, and 37 small churches that have been planted throughout this region. It's gone on now for decades. And uh, Simon was the chief driver, and they take the product of, they have 2,000 widows in a co-op program that raise vegetables and so forth, and then they take this to market in Tamale or all the way to Accra. And uh, I mean, it's shea butter. Shea butter comes from this area, and this was a big um, revenue stream for this, uh, for this ministry and for these widows. Simon's the chief, and he's chief uh, driver, and he has uh, suffered from diabetes for many years. And uh, got an infection in his leg and his foot, and uh, it worsened, and uh, uh, gangrene had set in, and uh, uh, he went to the hospital in Tamale, which is a teaching hospital, no question about the expertise of the medical, uh, of the doctors that are there. And they set up an appointment for his leg to be amputated. Uh, The infection had spread um, rapidly. Uh, The day after, he's filling up the truck at a gas station, fueling station, and uh, a person who looked like a beggar came up to him. And, uh, And Simon immediately thought he wanted money. It actually had some... CDs in his pocket, and uh, the man said, no, I don't want any money. 
I hear that you, uh, your leg is bad, and I see you limping. Uh, do you mind if I pray for you? And uh, Simon accepted it, uh, and the man took out a vial of oil, anointed his leg, prayed for him. Uh, Simon finished filling the tank of the truck, uh, and then looked for the man, couldn't find the man anywhere. And he went home, and later that evening, suddenly he felt his leg growing warm. And he could actually see the discoloration being removed, and the actual fleshly coloration. Uh, and by the next day, his leg was fine as normal. He went back to the doctors who had scheduled an amputation, and they said, we have no explanation for this. And, you know, of course, the impact of this on the community that had prayed for Simon, prayed for his health, they realized what this meant for him as a driver not to have a left leg that could clutch uh, the truck, uh, was great. Um, I don't know what explanation you give to that. I give it as a, an answer to prayer where God intervened. Uh, when I was two, my father was uh, operated on for stomach cancer. A team of six surgeons at uh, Meyer Memorial General Hospital in Buffalo, New York. And uh, they opened him up and uh, and closed him up because the cancer was uh, had spread. And uh, my parents were just on the verge of buying a house. And uh, the doctor said to my mother, not to my father, but to my mother, you shouldn't go through with this. Uh, he'll be, he will not with, be with you for very long. Um, and my mother never told my father. They signed the mortgage. Um, and my dad lived for 18 more years in very good health with no explanation really for this remission. Uh, my, my brother was born. Um, his avocation, he was a mathematician, his avocation was carpentry. Uh, I had a vital, energetic father uh, for 18 years after he was diagnosed with terminal cancer and about to die. Uh, so I don't find the miraculous, uh, I mean, I, I think it can be presented in weird ways and overdone uh, and inflated, all of that. But I believe this account of the lame man jumping and praising God and running around uh, for a person that had been sitting at the gate for years. Verse 11, while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the, pl in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, now again, remember, this is oriented for the Jews. As John Stott says of this passage, uh, the apostles really believed that Christ was the purest form of Judaism. So there's nothing anti-Jewish of about the emerging church. Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? 
Why do you stare at us as if our own power of godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him. These yous are real important. They will become evident uh, at the end. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. And though he had decided to let him go, you disowned the holy and righteous one. Now notice the juxtaposition of servant Jesus and holy and righteous one. That pretty much covers the span. (laughs) The servant Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, to the holy and righteous one. The highest thing we can say about Jesus, about God. And ask that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. For some reason, you know, I think this is peculiar to this message that Peter gives, the reference to author of life. But it's an important one. But God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It's Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. Now, um, this idea of a name theology, you know, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. There is a lot for, especially the culture out of which the Bible emerges, that was vested in a person's name. We tend to look at names like labels. Uh, Douglas in British means gray. I mean, how do you how do you bank on that? I mean, how do you? Uh, I mean, it, it's kind of like, huh. um, but that's not how uh, the biblical world thought in terms of the name. Uh, and I'm just quickly going to read uh, when the apostles used the expression "the name of Jesus," they consciously filled it with the expression with that expression, with the content of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. In one phrase, it's kind of like shorthand notation for the whole thing. In one phrase, it encompasses everything Jesus represents. The whole content of salvation revealed in Jesus is comprised by his name. Belief in Jesus' name is equivalent to believing in his messianic mission, And I've got scriptures for all that. Obeying God's command, receiving forgiveness of sins, possessing eternal life, escaping judgment, receiving the gift of the Spirit. The baptismal formula in the name of Jesus Christ underscores the fullness of Christ's saving work contained in his name. I could go on and prove it to you, (laughs) at least from a New Testament perspective. The name represents everything And so in the preaching, to hold to the name of Jesus, uh, again, you know, these are compressed accounts. Lucid brevity would be a description of this preaching. But behind that, and we know from, uh, it was evening when they were arrested, and prayer was at three. So you've got at least three hours, three to four hours to work with here. So we can imagine that this uh, conversation, this uh, interaction had gone on for some time. Verse 17, now fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. Now, 
Ignorance doesn't mean innocence for the lawyers in the room, right? <laughs> Ignorance doesn't mean innocence. Uh, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Uh, you know, you've got this sort of juxtaposition of you were used <laughs> uh, in the ultimate plan of God. You were used by the evil one, and you were used by your own choice. All of those fit. And verse 19, repent then. And here we get the gospel. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. First benefit, sins wiped out. Second benefit, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And third benefit, that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Very clear. Jesus is at the heart of this. It's in his name and in his power and through his spirit. Verse 21, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Uh, Peter here acknowledges the long ago, and we are living in the long ago. I think the last days began with the resurrection and the ascension. We're in the end times. It's just those end times have taken a long time. And Peter acknowledges the long time on, the, head, on the, the lead part of it to get to Jesus. And I think we can acknowledge something of the long time after Jesus that does not jeopardize the truth of it, for sure. Verse 22, for Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Now, and what's interesting about this in terms of the Jewish connection is that this sermon will quote from Isaiah 53, at least allude to the suffering of Christ. From Deuteronomy 18, Moses's famous message of the prophet who's going to come after him, who really is the one who's uh, taking the leadership. And then 2 Samuel 7, verse 24, indeed, beginning with Samuel and all the prophets who have spoken, have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and the covenant of God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed, Genesis 12. So you got Isaiah, Deuteronomy, Samuel, and Genesis. And I'm sure that Peter elaborated more on this, bringing it home, that the purest form of Judaism is receiving the Messiah, the servant Jesus, who is the holy and righteous one. Now, verse 26 is important. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now, I think there's a parallel in this speech between the beginning of the sermon in which Peter says, uh, you, 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 verse uh, 14, you disowned the Holy and Righteous One. Verse 15, you killed the author of life. This emphasis, and again in verse 13, you handed him over to be killed, you disowned him. Those yous are matched in verse 26. This is Luke, 
working it, I think. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you, the servant being Christ, to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now, I would hope that everybody who would hear this could identify with both yous. Uh, we are responsible because of our sin for the need for God's redemptive sacrifice. Uh, this is what we believe. This is Orthodox Christian thinking that we fit into that you category. You disowned him. You crucified him. You gave him up. And then I hope that we can all personally receive and accept that Christ has come to bless you from turning you from your wicked ways and turning you to Christ. That's kind of the evangelistic impact of this gospel message, this second sort of Pentecost, as it were, sermon, uh, eight weeks away from before Jesus died. I'm not going to stop there because, and this is where on Monday, that's where I was going to stop. But chapter four finishes it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, these chapter headings and so forth are, are something imposed on the text. They're not part of the narrative. They certainly were part, not part of uh, inspired scripture. The priests, verse one of chapter four, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, the Sadducees are referred to here. They were like our post-enlightenment thinking today. They did not believe in the resurrection. So on several levels, the disturbance in the temple in terms of thousands hearing this message because 2,000 came to Christ that day, we'll be told. But also that they were preaching something that the Sadducees thought was wrong intellectually. And of course, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests would have thought it's wrong in terms of holding out any kind of hope of this Jesus being the Messiah. So wrong on a lot of levels, according to the opposition. Verse 3, they seized Peter and John because it was evening. That's where I get my three hours or so, and because the hour of prayer that they went up was at three in the afternoon. And they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, verse 5, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And this... Ananias, the high priest, was there. So was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. And they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and are being asked how he was healed? Well, then know this. I mean, the power comes through the written word here. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus, 
Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, quoting Psalm 118, which has become the cornerstone. And then salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind whereby we must be saved. Boy, we could spend a lot of time on verse 12. And uh, let me just say this. I mean, one of the ways that I begin with that discussion of the exclusive truth claim of Christ, that only in Christ, uh, and I do believe all are saved by Christ. Now, how God works that out, I think, is probably beyond my imagining. I believe God can break in through the power of Christ anywhere, with whomever. Uh, God is singular. God is one. God is person. Just like each of you, there is no clone of you. There's only one Joe. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and do we deny that singularity and that personhood to God? Uh, God is one. Uh, and this is where marriage and monogamy is, I think, one indication of that, the, the singularity of the person. And uh, to know God is to know that person. And to know God is to know God in the way that God has determined for us to know God. And uh, you trace the salvation story all the way back to, to Adam and to Eve and the need for redemption. You trace it to Abraham, who, uh, through whom the nations of the world would be blessed. There is a path. There is a way. There is a truth. It fits with Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. I can't know you apart from you and how you let me know you. And that's true, I think, of the Lord God. I can know you because you have revealed yourself to me. You have shared who you are and how I might know you. I can't invent ways of knowing in general and generic, nor designate that just any way is going to work. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind whereby we must be saved. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.